Welcome to our Lenten sermon series entitled Ignite. Today is about sharing our hearts when we can't seem to find Jesus. As we begin our journey into the text, a, a time and it's really the only time in Scripture when we know anything about Jesus' early years growing up before his public ministry begins. Uh, I encourage you to let your mind wander as I take us down a trip of memory lane, I suppose, in the way in which even our, our own culture has changed over the decades. I can remember as a young boy growing up in uh, the Midwest, home life at that point was, was different, quite a bit different than it is even, even today. I, I remember we pretty much left our home unlocked during the day. Uh, the house was always open. You could walk in. Even neighbors would come in. If they needed sugar, we encouraged them, hey, if you need something during the day when we're gone, just come in and get it. Leave us a little note. Our house was open. Rarely was our home locked. And, uh, of course, we would lock it when we were ready to go to bed at night to retire. And every once in a while, on that rare occasion when the house would be locked, we could always go next door to the Conrads. Um, lived right next door. We were on a cul-de-sac. Everyone was very connected. We all got together for the 4th of July together every year and had a big old uh, block party with horseshoes and all kinds of games for kids and, of course, you know, fireworks. We all knew each other's life. We all helped raise each other's kids. If my neighbors saw me doing something bad, my parents would find out about it and, well, you know the rest. That was my life as a boy growing up. Now, my life as a parent with young children was essentially the same, only by then it had changed a little bit. We were always locking our doors when we would leave the house. We were now beginning to take our kids to school and drop them off beforehand and pick them up afterwards. Schedules were coordinated so this could happen. In other words, when I was a kid, the days of walking to the bus and whatever the weather was, rain, snow, cold, windy, warm, hot, we just walked to the bus, got on the bus, took the bus to school, or we would even walk to school sometimes. We'd allow ourselves enough time, ride our bikes. Things had changed by the time Don and I had children, just a couple of years ago. We were locking our doors, taking our kids to school, and picking them up. Although there were some things that were still different. We lived in Minneapolis for 10 years, and on our, on our street there, there were over 20 kids, almost all about the same age, and I, I don't know why this is the case, and you have, to, you have to just giggle and laugh about the irony here. I like peace and quiet, you know, I'm kind of an introvert. But all 20 or more of these kids tended to resonate towards our home with all kinds of kid toys and noisemakers and loudness. And it wasn't anything out of the ordinary, but it was just kind of creative chaos. Perhaps it's because we had always a standing freezer full of popsicles that anyone could walk into the house in and grab themselves one and find themselves a treat. Although I do have to say there was one kind of creepy experience I'll never forget, and it kind of put us into a different place. I can remember waking up at 8 o'clock in the morning with one of the neighbor boys in his pajamas standing next to me, not saying anything, just looking at me, 
with curiosity in his eyes while he ate a popsicle and popsicle juice was dripping down his cheek onto his pajamas. I realized, maybe we need to lock the doors just a little bit better. I said, hey, buddy, are you sure you need to be in here at 8 o'clock in the morning? Why don't we head back out and you go home for a while, and then we'll catch up with you with the kids, and we'll play later. Today, it's a lot different. We tend to be very isolated and alone on our own. We still take our kids to and from school, religiously, I might add. And we protect them. In Jesus' day, the life of Jesus as a child, while it was centered on the family, it was more centered on the whole community. I would be raising Len's kids while Len's kids would be raising his own kids and my kids. We all collectively were parents of our own children and the parents of everyone else's children. There was a moral responsibility that we all shared. We all held similar values. We all had similar ways of looking at the world. We all had similar worldviews. We all had similar ways to discipline. The list is long and large. It wasn't just my family, Dawn and I and our three children. It was the communities together. So as we dig into our story, it's not going to be uncommon to hear that Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, couldn't find Jesus for over a day. Because the assumption at that time was, Len's family's got them. Or someone else's family's got them. While they're taking the journey of seven miles from Jerusalem back to their home. And in some countries today, this is still the case. I'm most familiar with Africa. Others may be familiar with other countries. But this notion in South Africa of Ubuntu, I am because we are, is very, very common in other places of the world. In fact, Ubuntu, that notion of I am because we are, is a reflection of a, communal, a community way of raising children communally. And in many inner city ministries, even in summer programs today, you'll hear we're, we're studying and living into Ubuntu this year. So, Jesus gets lost. His parents can't find them. And they return to Jerusalem on their own without the security of the remainder of their community to look for their Seemingly lost child. That must have been a huge culture shock. Searching for Jesus. Unable to find him. There may be times, and this might be one of those times, in our life when we feel like we've lost Jesus. Or at least we can't seem to locate him for the moment. The question is, when we seem to have lost Jesus, how do we share our hearts in a way that's healthy, respectful, and open to transformation and change? So let's read the story uh, in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52, because we want to learn how to share our hearts when we can't seem to find Jesus. 
Listen to the story. It's great. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Nothing new here. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. They had been doing this for over a decade. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. This is like the first version of Home Alone, way before Macaulay Culkin. Macaulkin. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company or their community, they traveled on for a day. Then, a day later, they began looking for him among their relatives and friends and their neighbors. And when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Interesting. After three days, little, a little foreshadowing of things to come. They found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, catch this, listening to them and asking them, keyword, questions. Listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and even his own answers. Judgment day. When his parents saw them, they were astonished. His mother said to him, like my mom had said to me a few times, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously, keyword anxiously, we've been freaking out, searching for you. Notice the difference in tone now. Anxiety in mom, dad, Jesus' tone is a lot different. It's, it's unalarming. It's boundaried. It's a non-anxious presence. He says, a 12-year-old, why were you searching for me? He asked, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? But mom and dad didn't understand what he was saying to them. See, he's still in hot water. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was still obedient to them. I like this line, but his mother treasured. In the birth narrative, we read, Mary pondered all these things in her heart. In the text here, Mary treasured all these things in her heart. She didn't have to go write it down in her baby book. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and humankind. My friends, the reading of God's word this morning. To me, this is a very practical lesson from the life of Jesus, both here in this text, and I'm going to jump us ahead to a text in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 15, as we make our way through here. Two instances where they can't seem to find Jesus in Luke's gospel. So this morning, I'd like to be very practical. How do we share our hearts when it's difficult to find and see Jesus? I'd like to do this with two questions, two responses, and a way forward. Question number one. Ready? Question number one. How do we share our hearts when our hearts aren't in sync with one another? 
Jesus' heart in the temple was not in the same place Mary and Joseph's heart was. They were on two different levels. He was a learner, had to be about his father's business. They were freaking out and frantic. Every parent can relate. Every child can relate. Hey, man, what's the big problem? I'm okay. It's all good. When our hearts aren't in the same place, how do we, how do we share, share our hearts with each other? What I find fascinating about Jesus in this text is, it says a couple of times, he was in the temple listening and asking questions. Did you hear that? You see, when I'm not in the same place as my neighbor or my fellow parishioner or with someone else in a church or on different political or ideological lines, let's follow Jesus here and just slow it down. Stay engaged, be tender by asking good questions, just like Jesus did. Why are you looking for me? Tell me more about that. Why is this so important to you? The, notice the result of that kind of a strategy. It's an inviting strategy. That inviting strategy, according to our text, brought to the crowd Amazement. Amazement. A coming together, not a breaking apart. An astonishment. Amazement and astonishment that tended to bring unity. Why? Good questions. Inviting questions. Treating each other like lambs, not roaring at each other like lions. The other thing we noticed in this story is Mary and Joseph, rightly so, I can remember when we lost Katie more than once, once at a baseball game, once at Disneyland of all places, literally freaking out. Literally as a parent, freaking out. The interpsychic dialogue basically went like this, you are the worst parent on the planet. How could this happen? They weren't aware of the amount of anxiety, and they projected that into Jesus. And Jesus, as a 12-year-old, was able to put up a boundary and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He disengaged from the anxiety that his parents were projecting into him so that he could change the conversation, de-escalate it, so to speak. Respect them, he was still obedient. Respect them, listen to them, ask good questions, but in a way that brought people together. It didn't become a shouting match. Powerful to me. So how do we share our hearts when they aren't in sync? First, we ask good questions. And secondly, we've got to, before we engage in any conversation, notice the level of anxiety in ourselves first. Say nothing until we've been able to reduce the level of anxiety in ourselves and identify what the real issue is that's triggering us. 
hard to do in real time, but it's transformational in family life, in work life, in relationships, in romantic relationships, in church life, in political life, in geopolitics. You see, Jesus was able to non-anxiously de-escalate his parents' anxiety by not getting involved in their anxiety. What's the result? The scenario went from right versus wrong, prove it or defend it, to everyone in this family is loved and beloved by one another. You see, when there's conflict, when our hearts aren't in the same place, it's hard to find Jesus. Because we tend not to ask good questions. We tend not to be aware of our own anxiety. And we default into a posture of, I am going to speak to defend, to prove, to correct the other side that's obviously in the wrong. And where does it leave us? Well, it's an adventure and missing the point. We get nowhere. (laughs) We don't. Think about how it's happened in your own life, in multiple scenarios and situations. The reason this is so important is because even when we disagree, and we will, when our hearts aren't in sync with one another, when our minds are in different places with one another, even within the church community, let alone the families, units that we engage. We still, as people of faith, have a Christian responsibility to continue to stay engaged with one another. You see, what Mary was able to do was to do something that I think is profound. Thank you, Jerus Swiger. See, there's two types of curiosity. One type of curiosity is corrective curiosity, Mary. The other kind of curiosity is genuine curiosity. Mary exhibited, I need, I'm curious about this, but I need to correct my son so this doesn't ever happen again. And we do the same thing. You know, I might get into a spat with someone, and I immediately default to, well, I'm right, they're wrong. I'm curious about where they're coming from, but curious to the extent that I need to be corrective and win them and prove them and defend my side, win them over. That's somewhat of an inauthentic approach to the word curiosity. Jesus, on the other hand, engaged in genuine As a 12-year-old, genuine curiosity. He asked a question. A genuinely curious question. Why were you looking for me? I, I really don't understand. I had to be here. This was my father's house he asked great questions 
Mary moved from corrective curiosity to genuine curiosity in the text. Because I can imagine them as they returned home. Jesus, obedient, he said he was obedient. But see, genuine curiosity leads to true belovedness. Corrective curiosity can only look at the other person as an antagonist that needs and must and has to be corrected. This text is powerful from a 12-year-old. Mary stored these things in her heart. And then Jesus grew in wisdom as if this wasn't wise enough and stature. He grew up. And in favor with God and humankind. So how do we share our hearts when they aren't in sync? (laughs) Ask good questions. Ask genuinely curious questions. Watch our own anxiety levels and tame them with the power of the Holy Spirit temperately before we engage. The other perspective is not a debate to be won. The other person is a human being loved, created in the image of God, who deserves to be heard so that both can move forward. And here's the key piece. Both move forward, transformed, changed, and new. Neither one is still left in the same place. All right, that was the first question. Good text, huh? Second question. How do we find the Jesus we thought we'd lost? How do we find the Jesus we thought we'd lost? What I find interesting in this story and in the Emmaus Road story coming up in Luke chapter 24 is that these are the two times in Luke's gospel that we thought we lost Jesus. Where's my Jesus? Right? I can't even go to my family and talk about it anymore. I can't. I can only go to my favorite news channel and talk about it. I certainly can't talk about it in a safe place in my community of faith. Where did my Jesus go? Well, after three days of high parental anxiety and internal conflict, Jesus was found in the temple. And the text says that Jesus had to be in the temple. It was necessary, the text writes. And we too find Jesus when we think we've lost him. In only one place. Not in our favorite Facebook group. Not in our favorite homie group. Not in our favorite Bible study group where we all align similarly. We find the real Jesus, the true Jesus, right here in this Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the Gospels. To me, the most powerful aspect as a human being and a pastor is I can read this thing differently every time. And you can see I have read this multiple times. This page is actually a little torn, which kind of bums me out. I underline things. Different things pop out each time I read it. Every time I read this text, I 
I take all of my latest experiences and I read about Jesus again for the very, 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 very first time. There's never a moment in my life where I'm not on the precipice of transformation if I allow it to happen. If I'm asking good questions, if I'm genuinely curious, if I'm not in a posture of defending it, proving it, or correcting someone else, I have the opportunity to read about Jesus again for the very, very first time. That phrase coined by <laughs> Paul Ricoeur. And that's what's happening significantly in this text. So today, how do we find Jesus when we can't find Jesus? Right in the Bible. Right in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not reading into what we were told to believe about what he said, but to read exactly what he said. Not to impose our ideology into the way we read the text, to strip that all away and push it to the side and read exactly what we see in the text and then take the very same principle and apply it in modern day life so that the realm of God takes priority to all other voices that are clamoring for our attention. We've lost Jesus today. Zoom forward in Luke's gospel with me to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. I'm not going to read them all. I'm going to synthesize and summarize. But I want you to read it later if you find the time. And by the way, there's notes for this in today's email that came out about 8 o'clock in the morning. This was the story of our two folks that were bummed out three days later. They still hadn't seen Jesus after the crucifixion, and the burial. Where is Jesus? We've lost our Jesus. Two disciples are on the road to Emmaus. They thought he was lost to them. Here we have two people looking for Jesus for the past three days. Like Mary and Joseph looking for Jesus in the temple. Our two friends... Cleopas, and I don't remember the second one. Three days later, looking for him, couldn't find him yet. Gone. Jesus is gone. They lost him. And all of a sudden, as they're bummed out, walking along a dusty trail, a stranger comes up and says, what's going on? The stranger was Jesus, but he was unrecognizable to them. Catch that. Jesus was unrecognizable to these two disciples who had spent years with him? Jesus, unrecognizable to them, explained that it was necessary that Jesus be about the Father's work. Crucifixion, death, now the first resurrection appearance. Suddenly, the text says, they recognized Jesus. Isn't this genuinely curious? <laughs> How could disciples who knew so much about Jesus and thought they knew everything there was to know about Jesus, how could that background make it plausible 
that when they see Jesus, they don't recognize him? My friends, there are a lot of Christians in the church today living the exact same dynamic. We're having a hard time seeing Jesus these days. Oh, we're seeing a lot of other things, but it's a hard road to see Jesus and only Jesus these days. And it's getting late on this Emmaus Road thing, and these two were excited. And they said, listen, you can't keep traveling tonight. We want you to come to the house and have a dinner with us. So come home, have a dinner with us, stay the night, Jesus did, and he explained Everything they thought they already knew from the very beginning, they explained it to him again. And they saw all of it afresh again for the first time. There was no corrective curiosity here. It was only genuine curiosity, and it was transformational. They were able to see Jesus again for the very, very first time, and new, in new, and un. Fettered ways. I, I, I love this story. The scriptures just get opened up in new ways. And the text says their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened as if they hadn't already been opened. Right? I mean, that's the amazing thing about all this stuff. Their eyes had been opened, man. They had seen all this stuff. They were believers upon believers. They're willing to go to their death for this guy. Just like some of us in our corrective curiosity, ideological positions. Jesus says, no, man, come on. Back off from all that. Back off from all that. This is a journey where your eyes can be opened again and again and again and again and again and again and again. That's the power of the transformation of the Word of God as I'm alive in your midst and the Spirit of God is working in your hearts. This is genuine curiosity at work among the beloved. And they saw it to be true. They saw it to be true. They get up the next day and they can't believe it. They run to the house where the rest of them are and they said, he's alive, I can't even believe it. He's alive, he's alive, he's alive. He explained everything to us. Now it all makes sense. We thought we knew what was going on. Now we totally get it. Friends, that's not a one and done event. That's a, a generation after generation after generation after generation after generation event. That's the power of Jesus the Christ revealing himself to us again. And this book is getting, I'm going to have to get a new Bible on sabbatical. In this thing. Let me recapitulate. Regardless of tensions in family life or work life, church life, fearing that we cannot find Jesus in the ways we've always found him, because of anything, and today more than ever, because of ever-polarized politics. My friends, I haven't talked to a pastor anywhere lately that isn't struggling to figure out how to traverse, and it's happening, the way politics are polarizing not just the culture, but the congregation. And we're dying on a vine. 
The nationalized, polarized politics are in the church of Jesus Christ. And it's tearing us apart. Can we please set aside corrective curiosity (laughs) for genuine, genuine curiosity that's willing to read Jesus in the Gospels and see him for the very, very first time yet again? That's the power of deep discipleship. So, let's try setting aside a defending it and proving it tactic. Remember that we're all beloved by God. We are. We're all beloved. Even those on the other side. And let's risk setting aside corrective curiosity that seeks to convert people to that perspective, to that position, and enter into genuine curiosity that acts asks good questions of one another around a safe table. Perhaps COVID allow us to have a meal together soon. Hey, tell me more about that. Why is that important? When did that become important? What, what life event brought that to light for you? How does that value play itself out in this scenario? And does that particular value align with the Jesus we read and see and encounter in the pages of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. We've got to be able to put all this alongside a Jesus who found it necessary to be about his father's business by dying on a cross to engage with the pain and suffering of the wounded, the downtrodden, the sick, the lonely, the misplaced, the forgotten and the marginalized. Because we are all of these things eventually somewhere along the line in life. Perhaps through this long journey of discipleship discovery, we may come to see a deeper reason for the church to be on Christian community development in the world with fresh and new eyes like the two on Emmaus Road, like Mary and Joseph having their aha moment with their son of 12 years old, whose name is Jesus, the Christ, Emmanuel, King of kings and Lord of all lords. Perhaps if we do this, we may close the gap between differences and see that we have more in common than we originally thought. Perhaps, my friends, just perhaps. Let's pray. Amazing text, amazing story. Feels when you read it initially, old, outdated, irrelevant, has nothing to say to us today. But boy, if we risk digging in to see what's actually there, the possibility of transformation and seeing it 
again. Seeing him again. For the very first time. Even though we thought we'd seen him for decades and generations. That's the power of a book we call the Bible that is sharper than any double-edged sword to change, empower, transform, repair, reconcile with compassion and grace. Perhaps, just perhaps, we'll be able to share our hearts because we found Jesus again.